Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Kane, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover the 1980 film adaptation of The Shining. Let's start the show. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, The Shining stars Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance, Shelley Duvall as Wendy Torrance, Danny Lloyd as Danny Torrance, and Scatman Crothers as Dick Halloran. Kubrick's vision for The Shining is significantly different from King's novel, but hits many of the same beats. Jack Torrance is hired as the winter caretaker of the Overlook Hotel. His son has extrasensory powers, which the cook of the Overlook has too. As the winter gets worse, tension builds up between the family. We're finally tackling The Shining movie, which has loomed large over our coverage of the book, Jay. I think we've mentioned it almost every episode. Mm -hmm. It is a hugely influential piece of American cinema, I would say. Oh, yeah. And parodied relentlessly, um, used as inspiration for a lot of different things. It's straight up copied over and over again. I was just listening to a podcast and they mentioned the first Toy Story movie and how the directors made sure to point out, did you notice that the carpeting is the same as the carpeting in The Shining? So like even in kids' movies that came out 30 years later. Yeah, Ready Player One replays the scene of the bloody elevator and stuff frame for frame. Yep, yep. So we've got lots of background on this. And we wanted to start with something we did in a bonus episode a few months back, and that's talk about what makes a good adaptation. And we said that there are really three pieces. And if, if, if a movie can get those three pieces mostly right, you're generally going to have a good movie. Um, and, yeah. when, and when they, when they screw up one or two of them, you're, you're doomed. And so we, we had sort of identified those as, is the movie written well? Mm -hmm. Is the movie directed well? And is the acting good? So why don't we take a look at that, Jay? What do you think? I'll just run through those really quickly. In my opinion, the writing, I give that an A. The directing, A+. Plus. I mean, we're talking about Kubrick here. And the acting, also an A. So on average, that's, that's a solid A, almost A+. Plus. This is an excellent movie, as you put it a moment ago. And I think it's a really good adaptation, really emphasizing the word adaptation, because <laughs> yes. as you said in your intro, this veers wildly off of King's vision in some ways, but is still pretty loyal in a lot of others and in probably the most important ways. But Kubrick made deliberate choices. Some of them were likely for the fact that this is a visual medium versus the written word. Other things were for, I know that maybe the technology didn't exist to do some of the things he might've had to do otherwise. But I think all in all, this is an excellent movie and a very, very good adaptation. Yeah. And just to sort of go a little bit further on that, you know, obviously when taking a 500, 600 page book and adapting it into a, even a two and a half hour movie, there are liberties that are going to need to be taken and things are going to be streamlined. And so, yeah, I mean, look at the masterpiece that is the Dark Tower. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they were able to streamline that into 90 minutes of just gold. <laughs> Pure gold. Um, while many people, including Stephen King himself, would argue that it, 
doesn't hew close enough to the book. I think what has been written really emphasizes the directing piece of it. This is a director with a clear vision of what he wants to do, and the writing supports that vision. Yes. Almost to a T. And so I think that that's why both you and I think that those are really high grades. And then obviously with the acting, we all remember Jack Nicholson. We all remember Shelley Duvall. But I think both you and I found that sort of a surprise for us was Danny Lloyd as Danny Torrance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they always say, don't work with kids or dogs. And he was able to hold his own in this movie against Nicholson, which is sort of yeah. I mean, he's he not... far better than a dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you would have cast a dog in that part, <laughs> it, it probably wouldn't have worked. We might have been questioning some of those choices. But when you cast that boy, I mean, sure. I mean, he's not the best actor of all time, but I thought that he played the part how it needed to be played for it to work in this movie with the right amount of fear at times and just sort of creepiness of the of the hotel and how it impacts him. I agree. Danny Lloyd was way better than I remembered him being, and not just better than my memory, but I think just objectively good. He was eight years old when he played this part, and as I understand it, most of what he was directed to do was completely out of context. He didn't fully understand the nature of the film, the story that he was acting against, and any of the special effects and other quote-unquote scary things that he was reacting to weren't actually there. Mm. He wasn't looking at blood gushing out of an <laughs> elevator. He wasn't looking at a rotting corpse of a dead woman chasing him out of a hotel room. He was just playing with his cars and trucks in a hotel hallway, mm. right? Yep. My memory of one of the problems with his performance wasn't really him. I, it was the portrayal of Tony as the crooked finger. Yeah. I didn't like that choice, but that's not on him. I think that's on Kubrick. Right. They had to make a choice. How do we represent Tony? Is it a voice? Is it some special effect? Do we cast another actor who nobody can see except Danny? I'm sure they went through all sorts of iterations. And they settled on Danny Lloyd doing a little crooked finger thing and a crunchy voice. Yep. It kind of works better for me now than it did when I first saw this movie decades ago. But it's probably the weakest part of the performance. But again, it's not... Lloyd's performance that's weak there. I think it's an adaptation choice. Yep. So a couple of the other things with the adaptation, I think the maze as a metaphor just works so much better. It is much more interesting than the topiary animals. I mean, absolutely. It works yeah. on this like double layer of like Jack trapped in his mind as well as sort of like they're stuck in the maze and it just leads to a more dramatic conclusion than what could have been very fake looking, especially for the technology at the time, very fake looking animals attacking. It just sort of adds thematically the maze so much better. So that was a great decision. Um, the fact that we don't spend a lot of time in Jack's head and the whole wasp's nest thing and back at the school, like those are all things that work in a book because you're sort of building up characterization. But when you only got two and a half hours, like you got to cut it to the bone, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can just hint at like, oh yeah, something bad probably happened previously. And why is he in Colorado? And just cutting that all all makes a lot of sense. Now, I will say there's a couple things that don't work. Like, it's not a very subtle movie in a lot of ways. Like, it's over the top from the beginning. And I think one place where the adaptation isn't great is that I never got the sense that the three members of this family really loved each other and they were a loving family like King portrays in the book. I think that that's one of the things that was lost. 
But again, I don't think that that matters so much to Kubrick. I don't think that that's what he's there for. Whereas King was trying to show, here's a guy recovering from addiction and how it's tearing his family apart and how he's going insane. You know, I've seen different descriptions where Kubrick was more concerned about like, this is what happens with writers who are facing writer's block. And that's what this whole book is about, or just isolation and madness. Um, yeah. So those are a couple of things that didn't work so well for me. If we want to linger on Stephen King's problems with the movie for another moment, Kubrick decided to make Jack an already damaged person, mm. basically already a crazy man before he ever got to the Overlook and somebody who didn't like his family, maybe outright despised them. Yeah. I think he, he resented the existence of his child and he really condescended to his wife. And as you said, I don't think there's any love between at least Jack and the rest of his family. Right. There might have been a little bit, but even there, I, I didn't feel like Danny loved his father. And I, I don't think Wendy had any feelings for Jack at the point where the movie begins, except puzzlement at best mm. and fear at worst. And also Kubrick chose to show Jack as a failure. Jack, in Kubrick's eye, is somebody who never succeeded at anything. He wasn't a good writer. He never sold anything. He never published anything. He kept getting fired from every job he had, and he was failing his way closer and closer to the gutter, basically. And while Jack, the character in Kubrick's movie, saw his time as caretaker in The, the Overlook as his last chance to finally write his great story, and be a successful novelist. Kubrick never showed us Jack doing any of his job. Right. He's never caretaking. And when at the end of the movie, when it's revealed that he hasn't been writing either, he's basically just been useless yep. the entire time. The only time we see anybody doing any caretaking is a brief scene when we see Wendy checking the boiler. Right. So it's pretty <laughs> obvious that Jack is just a lump. So Taking this back to King for a moment, King didn't want Jack to be that guy. He wanted him to be a regular average person. This is the story that you and I have talked about is one of, if not the most autobiographical stories that King wrote. So King saw Jack Torrance as himself. Mm -hmm. And King is not a crazy man on the verge of insanity. He's an average guy who happens to be a successful writer and has struggled with addiction. Right. And has, at times, had some scary thoughts about his family. Like, would they just please shut up for once kind of <laughs> thing, which I am guessing is probably something every parent thinks from time to time. King wanted that average guy to be driven insane by supernatural circumstances in this hotel, coupled with the isolation. That's not what Kubrick gave us. I think what Kubrick gave us was fantastic but it wasn't what King wanted or intended. And that's where all the friction lies. And, you know, a lot of that lies with the fact that Kubrick hired Jack Nicholson to play Jack Torrance. And mm -hmm. when you get Jack Nicholson, you get Jack Nicholson. And as I was watching this movie, I, I was just sort of like, yeah, nine years later, he was the Joker. And it totally makes sense that Tim Burton would hire him to be the Joker because you could see him from this and be like, oh, yeah, he's a totally chaotic, crazy person. Let's, mm -hmm. let's do that. What I found fascinating was you did a little research and found out that there were some alternate casting ideas for Jack that would have totally reshaped this movie, I think. Oh, yeah. One of them was John Voight, which, yeah, that would have been interesting. Sure. Especially in 1980 yeah. or 79 when they were, or was it 78 when they began making <laughs> this movie? <laughs> uh, hundreds of takes. Um, Michael Moriarty 
Mm-hmm. I'm not too familiar with his stuff, but I think the most interesting alternate choice was Christopher Reeve. And if he had been cast, he would have been making this movie in between Superman 1 and 2. Which would just sort of blows my mind. I think yeah. that would have been so fascinating to see somebody who just came off of Superman, where he was, you know, in my opinion, the perfect, not only the perfect Superman, but the perfect Clark Kent, right? Mm-hmm. And then to have that guy be the guy who goes crazy at the end. And Christopher Reeve yeah, totally- Yeah, be like Superman 3. <laughs> it would have been just like Superman 3. <laughs> and they could add Scatman Crothers instead of Richard Pryor. It would have been great. Oh, it's all coming together. And Christopher Reeve could have pulled off going crazy, I think, and been fantastic. Absolutely. So, yeah. So let's get into a little bit more about some of the interesting things that Kubrick uses because he doesn't have a third person narrator and he doesn't have chapters of the book where he can sort of explain Jack's descent into madness. What he's got is film techniques to do this, right? Yeah, like inexplicable title cards. <laughs> yeah, there should have had a voiceover. And this is where Jack started to lose his mind. <laughs> but what does he do instead? Well, one of the things that Kubrick uses is mirrors. Mirrors appear to be a link to the supernatural in this film. Mm. Just about any time there's a mirror in the scene, something a little bit off is going on. For example, Danny has his first trance while looking into a mirror right at the beginning of the movie. Like it's five minutes in, he's talking to Tony, but he's looking into the mirror. Right. And then he sees the elevator of blood. The reveal of red rum is through the mirror. Yeah. When Danny brings the knife to Wendy when she's in bed and she takes it away from him and then hugs him and then looks behind him into the mirror and she sees that he's written red rum on the door, but of course, obviously sees murder and really freaks out. Yeah, and I think this is yet another example of how the adaptation is better than the source material. We saw Red Rum a thousand times in the book, and you're like, yeah, we get it. It's murder (laughs) backwards, sure. But in the movie, we don't see it until it needs to be seen. Yep. And it's written backwards so that when Wendy sees it from where she's sitting in the room, she sees its reflection and reads it immediately as murder because it's the visual medium it works so much better. Yep. Another earlier scene in the movie is Jack's breakfast in bed moment. And almost the entire time we see Jack, we are seeing his reflection. So we're seeing like the inverse of Jack or the opposite Jack or something mm. like that. We see Wendy not in reflection, but we see Jack in reflection. So it's it's almost like the, you know, like, I don't know, the parallel universe, Jack, or something. It's like, like it's his evil side. Right. So we're, we're being introduced to that darker side of Jack really early on, even in the most mundane of moments when he's just having a meal. Although I think it's also indicated back to what you were saying earlier, isn't it like 1130 and he's just waking up? He hasn't done any caretaking yeah. or writing. Because he just does nothing. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the most disturbing moments is when Jack goes to investigate room 237 and he sees, uh, as you would say, a real hotsy totsy coming out of the bathtub. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then when he hugs her and starts kissing her and he looks into the mirror, he sees the reflection and it is not the real hotsy totsy anymore. It is a decaying woman who he sees that he is making out with. Yes. In this case, the mirror reveals the truth. Yes. A really interesting one is that right after Wendy accuses Jack of being the one who hurt Danny, mm. he walks down the hallway back to the gold room. And he's clearly upset and angry. And as he walks down the hallway, there are a series of mirrors that he passes. Mm. The camera can't really see 
for, you know, from the angle that we're looking at, the camera can't see the reflection, but we know that it, these are hanging mirrors on the wall. And as Jack passes each mirror, he throws like a mini fit. You know, he's walking, and then when he's between the mirrors, he's like, ah, and then he's walking, and then ah, and this repeats each time he passes a mirror until he runs out of mirrors. So it's like the mirror is amplifying his madness. The last thing we should mention about mirrors is the 180 degree rule in filmmaking. Mm. And this is a rule that says that once you establish the position of the camera in relation to the subject, you can never move the camera beyond 180 degrees of the subject. You basically have to stay to one side of what you're filming at all times. Right. Otherwise, it is disorienting to the viewer and could even break the magic of what the camera is showing. And Kubrick deliberately breaks this rule in the red bathroom. When Jack is speaking to the waiter, Grady, the camera stays on one side of them for the first half of the scene. Grady is subservient and is totally apologetic to Jack. And then the camera goes to the other side of this 180 degree line. And that's when Grady becomes dominant and Jack subservient. So we are visually disoriented as the camera sort of flips the script, yep. so to speak. And it also completely changes or marks the dynamic change between these two characters. It's kind of like this is the point where Jack falls fully under the control of the hotel. He's been approaching it pretty rapidly. But at this point, it's like when that camera crosses the 180 line, crosses to the other side of the mirror, if you will, that's when Jack finishes his transformation. Yeah. That, that whole thing about the 180 rule makes me laugh because in the only movie that Stephen King directed, Maximum Overdrive, there was a scene where they were having a problem filming something. He's like, oh, well, we'll just move the camera over here. And the, the camera guy was like, uh, no, you can't do that. That's breaking the 180 rule. And he's like, well, what's that? I've never heard of that. And so they explained it to him. He's like, ah, I don't know. So he called his friend George Romero. And George is like, you could break it, but really good guys can break it. Like Sergei Eisenstein, who did for the Battleship Potemkin, he broke it and that was okay. But yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. And then he saw David Lynch, Stephen King did. And he's like, "What, a, David, what's this thing about the 180? And David Lynch laughed at him too. It's like, no, you shouldn't do that. He's like, but I can do it if I want to, right? And he's like, well, you could do anything you want. You're the director, but yeah, it's not going to work. So it just goes to show that there are rules and they should be followed. But if you are a expert at the rules, you can know when to break them for mm -hmm. important effects like Kubrick does here. Right. And it doesn't matter how much cocaine you're on. Yeah. You should break some of these rules. Yeah. And when you're breaking it, break it for good things like the Battleship Potemkin or The Shining, not for maximum overdrive. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, maybe if he broke more rules. <laughs> maybe if he just didn't make the movie. Ah, uh, well, now you're thinking. Sean, what about some of the crazy theories that people have about this movie? Because I don't think we can talk about The Shining without talking about how this has been analyzed microscopically for decades. Yeah, and you and I aren't going to go into that level of obsessive detail about this movie. There's a lot smarter people who would do this. But for me, the big thing is just the constant idea of this maze. Mm -hmm. It's introduced early, and when Jack and Wendy show up at the hotel, there's all this walking around of the passages, right? Yeah, yeah. Kubrick's using a steady cam, so like he could just follow the actors and walk as they're like going through. And there's all of these things of like Wendy saying, "Boy, I need breadcrumbs. It's like a maze in here. I could get lost." And this whole idea of the labyrinth. 
Yeah. We mentioned earlier that the maze is a metaphor for and literal interpretation of the hotel itself. Mm. And that's what you're talking about, how Wendy felt like she would need a trail of breadcrumbs to find her way anywhere she's going. But the pattern on the carpet is also like a maze. That's right. And the maze itself is both bigger and more complex than its own map. So if you look at the scene where the camera pans across the maze map near the maze's entrance, I guess it's trying to give people a fighting chance. You know, this right. is what the maze looks like. If you were if you were able to hover above it, you could see this is where where you would have to go. When we actually see the maze from the real maze from above, it is way bigger and way more complex than that map ever lets on. And there's also the model of the maze, which Kubrick so masterfully mixes in with the physical maze. Yep. He has a helicopter shot of the maze. He's got Danny and Wendy superimposed in there on a tiny little bit of it. And then he puts the model of the maze on top of that and then has Jack staring down on the model as if he were Zeus on Mount Olympus, <laughs> ready to move his action figures around like in Clash of the Titans, my favorite movie. <laughs> it's so great because the maze, like the hotel, is a perfect metaphor for how things don't add up. Right. And it also matches the hotel in terms of another of the crazy theories is that the hotel has like this ever-changing architecture. Mm. Yeah, that's weird too. We see them walking through and the one that always gets pointed out is when Jack walks in from the lobby to Almond's office, there's a window there that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. Physically, it doesn't seem like the window could be there the way the hotel is laid out. And then there's other places where it just doesn't seem like this is the way a hotel should be set up. Like the kitchen doesn't seem to be near the dining room. And then there's like these offshoots for like the back office areas. And then like even their little apartment area, it's like got stairs going up like and it's very tiny, which makes sense. But it also has stairs and multiple doors and it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Not only does it not make sense, it's inconsistent throughout the movie. Mm. Things seem to change and move. When we first see their living quarters, they enter like an exterior door from the hallway and then walk up half a flight of stairs. And then to one side is Danny's room and to the other side is their room. But then later when Jack is chasing them with the axe, none of that half flight of stairs is there anymore no. it's, it's just gone yep and there's a, an extra door where there shouldn't be to the pantry when jack's locked inside mm. on the outside there are two doors into the pantry on the inside there's only one door to the pantry why is that and kubrick had to manufacture all of this this was not no as i said it wasn't a real hotel th this, that they're filming this was not a real hotel yeah. so he had to deliberately say put an extra door there because i want people to think subconsciously something's not right. Yep. And that's what he does throughout this thing. Um, I love it. This is one of my favorite aspects of the movie that everything is just constantly different or it doesn't make sense. You know, just doors where there shouldn't be doors and windows where there shouldn't be windows. And the space seems bigger than it could possibly be. You know, the inside space is bigger than the outside seems to indicate. And it's so much fun because it just puts you off kilter. And in another movie, we would be complaining that this is all breaking continuity and that people are being sloppy and that it doesn't make any sense. In this movie, because Kubrick is such a perfectionist, it does mm. come across as deliberate and there's a reason for it. Just like breaking the rule of 180, yep. there's a reason that he's doing it. And it's to add to this idea of you're off kilter. Anything could happen at any time in this hotel. 
and I'm not going to prepare you for it. And it's going to be very upsetting to you if you're somebody who like notices these things, like, or even if you don't notice on a subconscious level, you're like, something doesn't seem right here. And I think that that comes across. It's like Kubrick wanted the hotel to feel like it was a living thing. And if he had had the technology for CGI, maybe he wouldn't have done the extra doors and the windows where there shouldn't be windows. He would have had the hotel just like while somebody was walking through a room, like a door would just move from one end of a wall to the other end of a wall. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't notice, but we would right. because they just left the room. But he couldn't do that. So instead, he just put extra doors and windows and stuff. And it's kind of like a house that tries to eat Jake, right? <laughs> yeah. The house basically just starts to rip itself to shreds and splinters as it starts to transform its shape because it's made of things that don't bend. It's made of wood and metal. But if Kubrick could have done that to the, the overlook, like, oh, room rearrange, room <laughs> rearrange, you know, or now it's bigger, now it's smaller, now there's doors here, now there's there, now these steps are gone. He could have done that, but what he did instead was he built a set that was just bonkers mm. and it works. Yep. Any other crazy theories, Jay? One other one I'd, I'd like to talk about is how did Jack get out of the pantry? Mm. So as presented in the film, he's in a room that he cannot get out of without help. Right. And there's no reason for Wendy to let him out. She worked really hard to get him in there and clearly fears for her life. And they even have a conversation through the locked door. And now she says, I'm getting out of here. You got to stay. Yep. There's no apparent reason for Danny to let him out. So it was a ghost that did it? Well, I mean, that's how it is in the book too, right? Yeah. That there's some other force that's doing it. Now, having said that, I think King is a lot more obvious that there are actual physical things happening in the hotel, whereas Kubrick, I don't know if he makes that quite as obvious, that there are actual supernatural entities there. I think he leaves it vague enough that you're supposed to question what's going on, and is it all in their heads? So it becomes more of an issue here, like, does Grady unlock the door, or is there something else going on? Yeah, there are some pretty easily defendable interpretations of this film that there are no ghosts in the hotel. That the hotel is not haunted. These are just the delusional visions of a family that has gone insane together. And maybe Danny has a supernatural power that allow him to see visions of the scary things, but a thousand gallons of blood isn't going <laughs> to unlock a door. Right. Right. That's not how that works, I guess. So that narrows the focus to Jack getting out of the pantry is the only evidence that there actually is something supernatural about the hotel, or we have to explore some other explanation. Such as? The only other thing I could think of is that Danny did it. Mm. And he did it deliberately because Danny saw, perhaps with the aid of his shining powers, a way to get himself and his mother to safety, and that meant leading his father to his death in the maze. Interesting. It's kind of like he fulfilled the destiny that he foresaw. Right. Rather than just leaving him to starve to death in the pantry, which would take a long time because he's got all the pantry food. Right. <laughs> I mean, Triscuits for years. So maybe it was, it was the maze or, or, or nothing. Yeah. So we've touched on a couple of these weird theories. If you really want to get your mind blown, you should go see the movie Room 237, which is a documentary of people who are obsessed with The Shining and who are just allowed to tell their theories. And the movie just intercuts these people saying, this is what I think this movie is about. And they intercut it with scenes from the movie. 
Some of the theories range from the, this movie is actually about the Native American genocide by Western Europeans to that this is Stanley Kubrick's confession that NASA hired him to fake the moon landing. Because that's why you make a movie. It's to, yeah. it's to admit that you lied about another thing you made. It is a fascinating look at some real obsessive film folks and the amount of analysis you can do on the movie. So check out Room 237. Jay, is it time for some Dark Tower thinnies? I think it is time. What you got? So I'm sure that when Warner Brothers acquired the rights to this book and offered it to Kubrick and Kubrick was like, yeah, I also want to read other things that King did, such as The Dark Tower to get a better sense of it and then littered his movie with Dark Tower references. But I don't think that really happened because... It came out before The Dark Tower, and uh, the only thing that I could find was that Ullman tells Jack that the Overlook Hotel was built in 1909, which if you add up those numbers, equals 19, and is also directly from the book, so it might not even be a Dark Tower thinny. Well, uh, it's the same thinny that we counted from the book. Well, there you go. What do you have? I have nothing, except I will just assume that at some point, the ever-changing staircases had 19 steps. It's got to, right? Yeah. That's just a uh, speculative <laughs> thingy there. How about yucking it ups? Got any of those? Like I tend to do when I watch movies or TVs, I always get excited because there's little warnings, right? Like smoking, gore, nudity. Ooh, nudity. All right. <laughs> I wonder what's going to happen. As long as it's not Jack Nicholson, I'm okay. But then it was worse than Jack Nicholson. They really made up that old lady to look pretty horrific coming out of the bathtub. That was yucky for me. Like the the sores and the pustules and just the makeup was uh, pretty well done there, I thought. I will forever remember her cackle. <laughs> she was like a stereotype of a cartoon witch. Yeah. Just without the witch costume. Straight out of Macbeth or something. Yeah. How about you? Did you have any yucking it up moments? Yeah. One of the grossest things that I saw in this movie was the drink that Grady spills on Jack. Ah, yes. It's a very unique liquor that I had never heard of before. What is that? It is called an advocaat. Ah. It is a traditional Dutch alcoholic beverage made from eggs, sugar, and brandy. And it's a rich and creamy drink <laughs> with a custard-like consistency. Yeah, because what he spilled on him looked like a melted vanilla shake or something, but it was alcoholic. Now, I guess like boozy shakes can be good. Yeah. Well, something about that. It seemed like it was somewhere between making scrambled eggs and a milkshake <laughs> and like, like it was raw eggs and stuff. And uh, I understand the culinary uses for all these things and they can be quite pleasant. But the way that it looked on Jack's jacket just was like, why would somebody deliberately consume that? Yeah. I mean, I'm okay with eggnog, but only for like that three week period around Christmas. Not what I'm just trying to hang out in a bar and have a decent time. Like, oh, give me an advocate. Like, yeah, not great. All right. Well, we want to thank our patrons for supporting the show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. Jay, we almost put this as a bonus podcast episode, but we had been talking about this movie so much, we figured we'd give it to all of our listeners on the main feed. However, we have been doing some really great work on our bonus episodes, and we would love for you to become a patron so that you can listen to those. How do you become a patron, Jay? You become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. 
Yeah, I know Destiny recently went to that site and joined as an apprentice. So thank you for becoming our latest patron, Destiny. Yes, thank you, Destiny. Is it time for fun stuff? It certainly is. What do you got? I love recognizing actors from other things. And Joe Turkle, who plays Lloyd, the bartender in this, was mm. also Tyrell in Blade Runner. I would never have imagined that because I, like looking at those two characters side by side, I wouldn't have guessed that that was the same actor. You just got to slap some giant Coke <laughs> bottle glasses on Lloyd, the bartender, and you've got Tyrell. Yeah. Nice little run for Joe Turkle there. 1980, The Shining, 1981 Blade Runner or 82 mm. Blade Runner. Like that's not, not a bad one to punch. Yeah, apparently uh, Turkle was a little bit of a muse for Kubrick. He was also in Paths of Glory that Kubrick made many years prior. Cool. Of course, it wouldn't be a Two Guys to the Dark Tower came episode if we didn't mention The Simpsons somewhere along the line. And this was parodied to great effect in The Simpsons with Homer playing Jack Torrance. Good stuff there. Always fun stuff anytime you can remind me of The Simpsons. That Simpsons parody is just perfection. I would say it's as good as Kubrick's movie. Yeah, it was in the sweet spot of The Simpsons run. The other fun stuff item I wanted to mention was the red versus yellow Volkswagen Beetle. Mm. It's not an important thing. The color of that car just doesn't really matter for the story. But King specifically tells us that their car is a red beetle in the book. Yep. And when we watch that Torrance car drive up the mountains in the beginning of Kubrick's movie, it's a yellow beetle. So Kubrick seemingly honored the book enough to make it a beetle, but didn't make it red. And then later in the movie, when Halloran's desperately trying to make his way to the Overlook Hotel in the winter, he passes an overturned tractor trailer, which is lying on top of a crushed red Volkswagen Beetle, mm. as though it, this were a middle finger from Kubrick to King, <laughs> saying like, yeah, I had a red Beetle. I didn't want to use it. I thought that was fun. Yeah, I, I could see that. Anything else for you? I did watch a film done by Stanley Kubrick's daughter called The Making of the Shining. It's about a 30-minute film. And I, I wouldn't say it's fun stuff, but you get a better insight into the conflict between Kubrick and Shelley Duvall and Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson to some extent. Um, this was not an easy shoot. I think you alluded to the fact that it took forever for them to film this. It was like a year and a half almost that they were in London filming this. And I think it really sort of ruined Shelley Duvall, which is definitely not fun stuff. But even in that movie, when she's talking about it, you could see how she's got this like Stockholm syndrome about working with Kubrick. Like she's trying to explain it away. Like, oh yeah, I learned a lot of stuff from him and he's so smart. But on the other hand, like I think he just totally defeated her. And then earlier today, I was reading something about how there was a scene with Scatman Crothers that Kubrick filmed 165 times, different takes. Yeah, it was just him getting out of the snow cat or something. Right? Yeah. And it's like, is there a reason to do this? And it was more like because Kubrick could. So again, not fun stuff, but just sort of interesting, all the, the lore behind this movie. The final fun stuff item I have is that the Here's Johnny that everybody knows about this movie sure. was improvised. <laughs> and the really interesting part of that is that Kubrick, I guess, just didn't watch much television and had no idea about Johnny Carson or The Tonight Show and therefore had... No idea that when Jack, probably on take 63, <laughs> just said, screw it, I'm just going to yell whatever I want into this hole in the door. Here's Johnny. And Kubrick's like, nailed it. <laughs> We're using that take right there. 
And that made it into the film. And it wasn't until after the film was released, I think, that Kubrick found out that wow. this was a direct pull from The Tonight Show. I don't know if there were any like copyright issues or anything like that, but it is so fundamental to the experience of this movie. Yep. I couldn't imagine it without it. And I think it works because Jack is just insane at this point in the story. And it makes sense that he would just yell something like that. Yep. I think we talked about it in the book. If Wendy wasn't already terrified of her husband at that point, him doing something so off kilter like that would really wreck her, you know? Mm -hmm. All right. So we, we've gone on and on about how much we enjoy this movie and how much in general people love this movie. It constantly is on top 100 lists and top 10 lists for horror movies. But at the time it came out, its critical reception wasn't necessarily great. It did make a decent amount of money. Yeah. Even considering all the time that they spent making it, um, it, it did okay financially, I think. And its current scores are great. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 84% for positive reviews from critics and a 93% from the audience scores. But what was interesting is a lot of the contemporary reviews were not great. Um, Roger Ebert didn't like it at first, but he revisited it in the early 2000s and gave it a four out of four stars. Really talking about a little bit of what you were just saying about how did Jack get out of the pantry? And Ebert's take on the whole movie was, are any of these characters reliable narrators? Can we trust anything that any of them are doing or saying? Hmm. And basically he said, the only one that seems to be reliable and has a point of view that we as the audience can relate to and trust is Scatman Crothers. And obviously that gets snuffed out towards the end, but like everyone else's point of view is betrayed in some way, right? Um, he notes that when the doctor is talking to Wendy about Danny, I think Wendy says, oh, it's been five months since Danny hurt his arm. Mm -hmm. And then later on, Jack says, it's been three years. It's like those types of things that get at like, what is real here? What can we trust? Who's telling the truth? So Ebert spends a lot of time talking about that. He also discusses sort of a really interesting thing. I guess in the first showings of this movie to critics, there was an epilogue at the end in which Wendy's recovering in a hotel room and they note that Jack's body is never found. Just a two minute scene at the end and sort of gets at, is Jack just absorbed by the hotel? Was he never there at all? But Kubrick left that out and just ended with the Jack body. Is that the alternate ending where the manager of the hotel comes and basically reveals the fact that he knows that the hotel is haunted? Or are we talking about 1408 now? <laughs> Kubrick filmed a version of the ending where the actor who plays Ullman comes to find Wendy recuperating from her experience and says things to her that make her realize that he has known all along that the hotel is haunted. Mm. He has sort of been acting as like the facilitator. Like he brings victims into the hotel oh, to Jesus. sort of like feed it <laughs> fresh bodies every winter and knows that this happens. Oh. And uh, I guess they decided to cut that because it- The ambiguity is better of- Yeah. 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 Much and better. just like actually Jack dying is better too. Anyhow, that was Roger Ebert's review. Uh, the probably most famous review and one of the most famous critics is Pauline Kael, who it's a long review and I'll link to it in the show notes. And it's a good review in that she's a very good writer and is very smart about these things, but she didn't really like the movie overall. She had a lot to praise about it. Her review starts off, if Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is about anything that you can be sure of, it's tracking. Kubrick loves the ultra smooth traveling shots made possible by the Steadicam. And there's a lot of those. We re referenced it a little bit earlier. But she loves how he uses it. 
But she goes on to say that Kubrick's absorption in film technology distances us. Each shot seems rigorously calculated and meticulous, and he keeps the scenes going for so long that any suspense dissipates. And then she says, and you and I talked a little bit about this, Jay, the actors appear to be merely Kubrick's tools, and you get the feeling that they have been denied any free will. And we've talked about how this is an orator's vision and that mm. Kubrick wants something to happen and he makes people do multiple takes and he breaks people down. And I've said to you before, like, I think I'd hate to be an actor because you're spending most of your day sitting around and then you have to be on for a few minutes here and there where you get filmed. And I think there's a lot of times that a director will say, yeah, show me what you've got. Give me different interpretations and, and play with this. But then there's someone like Kubrick who's like, no, you must do this at this point in this way. And I think that that would get tedious. And I think Pauline Kael sort of nails that in her review. Yeah, I suspect that things like the here's Johnny and who knows what else Kubrick managed to bludgeon out of his cast with the umpteen takes was just his really cruel method of letting the actors do whatever they wanted so that he would have just an entire spectrum of choices to pick from yeah. to stitch his movie together. So he's got 107 takes of Scatman Crothers getting out of a snowcat. One of those takes went into the movie. Sure. The other 106, cutting room floor. But something about that take that he picked was just what he wanted. And maybe it was the 105th one when Crothers was like, if he asked me to do this again, that's it, right? <laughs> yep. So there's something in his physicality, in the madness of his eyes, something that Kubrick was looking for and maybe didn't know how to elicit any other way. I, I'm not apologizing for Kubrick. I don't think this is a good way to get performances <laughs> out of your right. actors. But this was the method he followed, and it yielded the results that we see on the screen. Yeah, it broke Shelley Duvall. It kind of ended the careers of just about everybody who was in this movie, except for Nicholson. But he still made a movie that most people now regard as a masterpiece. Yeah. So there's some method to his madness. Yeah, I guess it still comes down to like how much of this is all the director and how much does anybody else bring to this? And is it a collaborative work environment or is it just I'm the general on the set? Um, and then one last thing about the critical reception, the Razzie Awards, which are always given out around the same time as the Academy Awards for the absolute dregs of movies, gave two nominations, Worst Director to Stanley Kubrick and Worst Actress to Shelley Duvall. What's interesting is just recently, like within the last 15 years, I think, they rescinded their Worst Actress for Shelley Duvall and have been much more sympathetic about it than they were at the time. So we'll link to some of these reviews in our show notes. Jay, how about some other worlds than these? Shall I begin? You shall. All right. I have been watching and very much enjoying season two of Gentleman Jack, which is available on HBO. And for those who are unfamiliar with the show, it's an 1830s period piece. It takes place in England. And it is based on the real-life diaries of Anne Lister. And what makes the story and the character so interesting is that Lister was an incredibly intelligent and accomplished woman from a noble family. She was a landowner, businesswoman, traveler, and also a lesbian. Mm. So everything that she tries to do, including effectively marry the woman she loves, 
is met with resistance. Most of it is simply because she's a woman. Right. Like she can't even vote, but she is of this noble house and has all of this land and wealth. She's also incredibly smart, incredibly well-educated and has all of these schemes going on, like like legit schemes, mm. coal mines and building hotels and all this stuff. But she has to do it all like through lawyers and bankers because she's a woman. Right. And then alongside all of it is the fact that she's gay and she has to hide that from the world. Mm. And all of this is done wonderfully. So check it out. It's on HBO. Both seasons are available. Very good. I am watching the final season, season six of Peaky Blinders on Netflix with Cillian Murphy in the head role. It's Thomas Shelby, who comes from a Romany background, and he and his family have become gangsters of a sort. And over the six seasons, Shelby increases his power so that not only is he just the leader of this small band based out of a bar in a backwater English town, but he's actually become a MP, a a representative in parliament and representing people and his his schemes get much bigger and he's got much more power. And Cillian Murphy is just fantastic. I think he's a great actor and he really has a lot to play here in Peaky Blinders. And also in it is... Tom Hardy, who's not in it very often, he plays a Jewish gangster named Alfie Solomons. Hmm. And whenever he's on the screen, he just steals the show. He's fantastic. Anyhow, it's a good show. It mixes some really interesting cinematography, acting. They put in cool modern music as well sometimes. Anyhow, that's Peaky Blinders, and that is on Netflix. All six seasons are out there now. Sounds great. That is going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we continue Danny Torrance's story in the sequel to The Shining, Dr. Sleep, covering the section prefatory matters. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You don't have any lines at the end here, Jay.